Now, we are about to start a brand new sermon series, and we call this series A Crooked Tree, Finding Meaning in Messy Families, because many of us deal with them. Uh, We just recently came through the holidays, and some of you are probably thinking, now I don't have to see my family again until Mother's Day, right? We, We deal with a lot of mess. So some of us, we come from a legacy of shame. Some of us are ashamed that we can't live up to our legacy. Maybe you struggle with sibling rivalry, or maybe it's a parent who is addicted, abusive, or absent. Maybe you had to grow up too fast, or maybe you still haven't grown up. Maybe you were too sheltered, maybe you weren't sheltered enough. One way or another, we all feel shame like we're messed up. Something is not quite right about us. It's not quite the feeling of guilt that we have done something wrong. It's the feeling that somehow we are something wrong. We don't always know why we feel this way. We can't always point to obvious things in our family stories. Most of our parents, even the troubled ones, were doing the best they could with the hand they were dealt, and they wished for a better life for their kids. They were caught in the grasp of something far bigger and more ancient than they knew, something that reaches out for us in spite of the best parents' fondest hopes. And one more thing to point out before we dive into today's text, the reason that half the men in this room are probably thinking, I don't feel shame. This, is, this sermon's not for me. Shame is difficult to identify because we associate the feeling of shame with sorrow, but men most men will very quickly swap out sorrow for anger, perhaps subconsciously before we even realize it. Not only is it easier to express anger than sorrow, but our culture is far more accepting of anger, especially when it comes to men. Here's why. Researchers have found that women primarily experience shame through perfectionism. The belief that you can do it all, and you have to do it all. You've got to be the perfect wife, perfect mother, perfect daughter, perfect friend, perfect at home, perfect in the workplace, perfect with the family budget and the PTA, and perfect in spin class, and perfect hostess, perfect, perfect, perfect. And you were told, uh, if not from your family, then from all of society, from your very earliest memories, little girls told that they have to be careful, have to be correct. And it breeds perfectionism, this belief that you must be superwoman. And anytime you fail to be superwoman or you're not quite as as close to superwoman as your best friend or your sister or, God forbid, your mother-in-law, then the shame rises up. Now, with men, it's, it's usually not quite this way. Men experience shame primarily through weakness. Society teaches us that the worst thing a man can be is weak for any reason, at any time, at all. And just as little girls from their earliest memories are told to be careful and correct, we tell our little boys to be brave and to be strong. And when they're not strong, when they're weak, the shame rises up and it it leads to sorrow. And shame and sorrow themselves feel like weakness. So embarrassing, so unmanly. So when you get shame and sorrow and weakness all kind of playing out in, in our hearts, it's too much to bear. It's, it's unbearable. 
And so we swap those things for anger. We get very angry because then the testosterone rises and the adrenaline rises and you feel powerful in your anger. So, so men you know, might say like, hey, I, I got a little problem with anger. We don't have any problem admitting that. We say like, look, if you, if you mess with the bull, you get the horns. And all the while, our, our problem with shame goes undetected. Shame is nothing new to the human race. Every messy family ultimately bleeds into one big messy family with the grandpa and grandma that we all share, Adam and Eve. It started out fine in Genesis. God put them in a paradise called the Garden of Eden, and we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. God gave them one law to follow, and probably within a week or so, they broke it. Genesis 3, verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame. The whole rest of the Old Testament is a record of how humankind kept trying to get back to that blissful, shame-free state. They tried perfectionism, following all of God's laws, but that didn't work. And then we see countless examples of anger and hostility from the time one of Adam and Eve's sons murdered the other all the way up to the end of the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament, the story of Jesus, the Gospels. And the very first Gospel is the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the first two words of Matthew in Greek are biblos genesios. So for braving the weather this morning, you're going you're to feel so proud of yourselves. You're all about to become Greek scholars. We're going to translate this together. So watch this. Biblos. Is there an English word that that looks kind of like? Bible. Bible. And Bible means book. It's why some people call the, the Word of God the good book. So biblos, book. Genesios. What English word does that look like? Genesis. Right. The book of the Genesis. Now, everyone in here who has, already, has actually studied Greek is probably going, that is not how you do it. Nevertheless, the most literal, the most accurate translation of the beginning of Matthew is the book of the Genesis of Jesus. Matthew is writing a new and better Genesis, a new deal for the human family. Now we're going to find out how to feel good about ourselves, how to feel good about each other, good about life. We're going to start at page one of the gospel, and the teaching is going to be so on point. The beautiful words, the gripping drama, the never-ending story of Jesus and his love, the cure for what ails us is going to be right here in black and white from the first sentence. So let's dive in, prepare to be amazed. Here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Uh, Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Uh, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. The widow of Uriah, Solomon, was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. I'm going to skip down a bit. 
it's it's got to get good soon. Here we go. Uh, Let's go to, say, uh, verse 12. After the Babylonian exile. Here we go. Business is about to pick up. All right. After the Babylonian exile. Jehoiakim was the father of Sheltiel. (laughs) Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad. Abiad was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Iliad. Iliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Methan. Methan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Well, that was underwhelming. Matthew, who saw Jesus rise from the grave and was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write this book, couldn't come up with a better beginning than this? Well, let's look at verse 1 again. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. Remember we said the most literal translation would be, this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah, son of David and son of Abraham. Son of David, son of Abraham. The two great promises in the Old Testament are the promise to David of a son who would be king forever and the promise to Abraham of an heir through whom the whole world will be blessed. So the title, Son of David, says to Israel, here is your king. The title, Son of Abraham, says to everyone, here is your hope. The original readers of the Gospel of Matthew would have read this First verse, as a fanfare of trumpets and a king's crier shouting, attention, please. Then notice how he ends the genealogy. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. To emphasize that Jesus isn't just one member in an ongoing family, But the goal of the whole list, Matthew arranges the genealogy into three groups of 14, or what some scholars say, three double sevens. The symbolism behind certain numbers was important to ancient cultures like the Israelites. When you see units of three and seven in the Bible, those are like signposts saying, pay attention, this is crucial, this is important. And after all, Matthew is a numbers guy. He's a tax collector. We learned that last week. He's using numbers to tell a story. This birth, Matthew is saying, is what we've been waiting for since the first Genesis. The new and better Genesis has arrived. Now, just as Matthew calls Jesus son of David, although David lived a thousand years before Jesus, and just as he calls him the son of Abraham, although Abraham lived 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, Matthew feels free to leave out ancestors here and there, to skip over ancestors here and there, to shape this genealogy to make the points he wants to make. Matthew is writing a theological and literary statement with his genealogy more than a historical one. Now, the names are real. Yes, he wants to be historically accurate enough to say that Jesus really is descended from David and Abraham, but that's it. He wants three sets of 14 names. Even though, for instance, he has to count David as the 14th name in one group and the first name in the second group. Even if he has to count Jesus himself as the final name in the third group. 
Matthew knows that fuller genealogies are out there, so he isn't trying to fool anyone. If I was telling you a story about our current president, and I want to make some points about him, I want to shape the story a certain way, and I say to you, you know, our president stands in the long line of, or stands on the shoulders of, Obama, Reagan, Kennedy, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Grant, and James Madison. Now you know that I left out a bunch of names, including some very big ones, right? You're thinking, where's Millard Fillmore? Well, and I'm not trying to fool you. You know that I left some out, and you can go on Google, and you can get the full list of all the names. So I'm not trying to fool you. But you would expect that I have some reason for mentioning the presidents that I did, and that it's going to become apparent as I tell the story of our current president. There's going to be a point to what I said, why I included them, that's going to manifest itself later on in the story. So Matthew isn't trying to fool anyone. He's writing a beginning to his story that says to the reader, this is both the fulfillment of two millennia of God's promises and purposes and the beginning of something new and shocking. Now maybe that was intriguing for Matthew's original audience, but do you care about the symbolism of threes and sevens? Does it matter when you're thinking about the pain in your life? Well, let's look at some of the names who are on this list. Notice there are five women, which was unusual in ancient genealogies because these were highly patriarchal cultures and women were not considered important, but they're important to the story of Jesus. A year ago, we did a sermon series uh, that, that looked at these five women called the Mothers of Jesus. You can go on our app right now. This is a screenshot from my own phone and you can hear each of those sermons. You can also check them out on Right Now Media. You can watch them and you can read the sermon manuscripts. But for now, notice all five of these women are from a different race. Most royal families try to keep the bloodlines pure, so this is odd. Maybe these women and the, and the men that they made babies with were just awesome. Let's check. The first is Tamar, and Tamar was a Canaanite. Tamar's father-in-law was Judah, who didn't provide for her when she was widowed, so she became a prostitute. Back then, prostitutes wore veils over their faces because of the shame, which is why Judah didn't recognize her when he went down to the red light district, paid to sleep with a prostitute who, it turns out, was Tamar. He didn't know. She gets pregnant. Later on, he discovers his daughter-in-law is a pregnant prostitute, and he wants to burn her to death until he finds out that the child was his, then he's okay with it. Next one was Rahab, and she was a Jerichoite, another worker in the sex industry. She betrayed her own people for some Jewish spies. And then the next one was Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites were descendants of incest through a, a incest between Lot, the nephew of Abraham, and Lot's own daughters. Ruth cuddled up to a man named Boaz when he was sleeping. He woke up surprised, and she asked him to marry her. Now, in our sanitized Sunday school world, we would imagine that even though we wouldn't want our daughters to behave like this right now, it must have been normal back then. No, it was weird. <laughs> and then after that, we have Bathsheba, a Hittite. At least by marriage, her first husband was Uriah the Hittite. Her second husband was King David. Imagine David as a modern-day tech titan like Jeff Bezos. Uh, and 
he's, uh, or Elon Musk, and he's, he's in his big penthouse. He's, he's walking around. He's got a glass of wine in his hand. He looks across the street at the other penthouse, and he sees this gorgeous model frolicking about in the nude. And he says, I must have her. And they begin an affair. She gets pregnant. Problem is, she's married. Well, no problem. He pulls some strings, has some of his connections, murder her husband. And that is David and Bathsheba. And then we have Mary, who was a Jew, engaged to a handyman, the unwed mother of Jesus, until... Come back next week and we'll tell you about that story. Let's go back to David and Bathsheba and look at their son Solomon as we examine some of the other names, some of the male names in this family tree. Now Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived except when he was letting a part of his anatomy other than his brain do the thinking for him, which was often because 1 Kings 11 verse 3 says he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Then there was his son Rehoboam, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He governed so poorly that 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel revolted and tore the kingdom in two. Let's skip down the list. A few good kings and priests, several inconsequential ones, mostly evil ones. How about Manasseh? 2 Kings chapter 21 says, Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. Can you imagine saying, My grandpa Manasseh was the meanest man to ever live in Floyd County. He was just the worst. In fact, he got the whole county in so much trouble one time. When I tell you the story, your ears will hurt. These are just some of the stories of sin and dysfunction in Jesus' family tree. Author Jen Pollock Michelle says it like this. Abraham, liar. Jacob, cheat. David, adulterer and murderer. Manasseh, most wicked of all the Israelite kings. These are the good for nothing ancestors of the king. And the genealogy reads exactly as it should, like a kind of neon advertisement for life with God, wanted men and women who've screwed up royally. On top of that, Jesus was born into a sticky situation. The kings of Israel, at least in the last 200 years before the birth of Jesus, were not from David's family. King Herod, whom we'll learn about in a couple of weeks, had no royal blood. He was a puppet whom the Romans made king to further their agenda. In that environment, if your family really was descended from the line of ancient true kings, you didn't tell that story. You wouldn't want Herod's spies hearing you bragging about your Ancestry.com report. Has anyone here ever been hated simply because of the situation that you were born into? Because of your last name? The color of your skin? The way you talk? The way you pronounce Louisville? <laughs> because you come from poverty? Because you come from money? 
the other side of the tracks. Jesus came from a long line of family drama, just like many of us. But while we didn't and couldn't choose our family, Jesus could and did. He was God. He'd always existed. Why did he choose to enter humanity this way? And if he had to come through this family, through the, through the line of David and Abraham, why did he allow the sordid parts of this family story to be told in his book? Why not suppress the embarrassing stuff? Because Jesus came the way he did and experienced the things he did, he can empathize with us. He connects to something within himself that knows how we feel. The only one who is always with you, who you can always pour your heart out to, knows how you feel. Research professor Brene Brown says, empathy is the most powerful connecting and trust-building tool that we have, and it's the antidote to shame. Empathy creates an environment that shame can't survive in because shame needs you to believe you're alone, and it's just you. That's why there's so much power in saying, I understand what that's like. Shame draws its power from being unspeakable. The story of Jesus, even the genealogy, brings language, narrative, and light to shame in order to destroy it. Remember what Pastor Jonah taught on Christmas Eve, Hebrews 2, verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. In the weeks to come, you'll see how Jesus, who had come from such a mess, lived a perfect life and then took all of our sin and shame upon himself in his death so he could bring us into a new family. We've battled shame since Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve in Genesis. But the new Genesis, the new deal of Jesus, means we don't have to be ruled by shame. When it comes to shame, only one opinion matters, and he isn't having it. Verse 11 says, so now Jesus and the ones he makes holy, you and I, have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. He wasn't ashamed of David and Bathsheba, and he's not ashamed of you. He is our elder brother, having brought us home to the Father. He hears us, and he teaches us to hear this, each other. Practically, don't miss this point, practically, this means we get to lean on each other and bring comfort and healing to each other following the example of our big brother. Brene Brown goes on to say, the experiences, okay, the experiences that make us feel the most alone are actually universal. When we find the courage to share our experiences and the compassion to hear others tell their stories, we force shame out of hiding and we end the silence. 
If, if you look on the back of your bulletins, you'll see in that list of events and opportunities that uh, we are several weeks away from the next round of men's and women's school, and it's a class called The Road Home, where participants will examine their family of origins in light of God's story and God's purposes for us. Uh, this would be a great chance for us to begin to dive into our own stories and each other's stories because you sit in, in groups, those of you that have taken classes before know that you're at, you sit at tables, we call them cohorts, you develop friendships, you deepen friendships with each other, and you'll work through some of this together. So if you'd like to sign up for that, you could simply grab a connect card on some of the seatbacks in front of you, fill that out, just write your info and, and write on there, I want to sign up for women's school or I want to sign up for men's school. Or on the app, you can just tap the events section and you'll see it in the list of events and you can sign up right there from within the app. Now, whether you take that class or, or, or not, whether you can take it or not, uh, I have a Monday challenge for you, something that I want you to, a new way to begin relating to people, something that I want you to think about. So the Monday challenge is this. When it comes to your mess, don't suppress it, confess it. Now, when we hear the word confess in the church, we oftentimes think confession of sin or confession of a crime. But confess means to be open and vulnerable no matter what you're confessing. So think about it. When we baptize someone here, we ask them, what is your sacred confession? We're not looking for them to say, well, I guess it started at this bar a few weeks ago. I was with this woman. And No, we're asking them to confess what they hold to be most true, most important, which is Jesus as Lord. So within the context of your mess, to confess, it means to be open and vulnerable, to be real with each other, and, and, and not to hide things that you are ashamed to admit. It doesn't matter that this is something uh, that you didn't cause. We're not just talking about sin. Maybe you do have sin that you need to confess, but maybe it's uh, sin that was done to you. Maybe it was just situations that you were part of, things that you didn't sign up for, that you had no control over, but for some reason you think you need to keep it bottled up inside. Let's begin to confess instead of suppress. So make a list of who you need to talk to. Maybe it's your community group or a group of friends, and you say, hey, I've been a part of this group for a while, and I want you to know that I've sort of been putting out this image of who I think I'm supposed to be, and I've kept a lot of things secret that I, I would like to share with you. I want to be known, and I want to know you here in this group. I want to be real. I want to be open about my story. Maybe it's you need to call mom and say, Mom, I, I know that uh, there's been a lot between us, and I've struggled to show you honor. I want you to, to know that I believe you were doing the best job you could, and I'd like for us to figure out a way to move forward. Or maybe it's son. Some stuff went down between your grandpa and me just like it had gone down between his dad and him and I swore I would be the one to end it but instead I passed it to you. I'm sorry. Asking for your forgiveness. I want to make it up to you beginning today. You know, Bruce Springsteen said, uh, we can all, we will all either be ancestors or ghosts in the lives of our kids and their kids, and their kids. And to be an ancestor is the natural order of things, and it's good, but we make ourselves into ghosts when our children and their children are haunted by the things that we've done and we've said, and the things that we've left undone and unsaid. Don't be a ghost. Through the power of Jesus, we can write a new and better chapter 
and our family tree. We'll learn how to do that together this winter here at Sojourn Gathered. Let's be a community who follows our Savior's lead in being open about where we've come from and what we're battling, even as we empathize with others. Whether you're the one trapped in a cycle of shame or you're the one that can bring encouragement and healing to someone else, don't suppress it. Confess it. Next week, we continue a crooked tree as we dive into things that we may have never fully considered about the birth of Jesus and what it means for us. And in the many Sundays to come, we'll see more and more clearly how Jesus solves our shame problem, our fear problem, our guilt problem, our people problems, and our me problems. Each week, we'll end by seeing how the sacrifice of Jesus says to us, I understand. And I've done something about it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this one. And after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine like this one. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until I come again. Hours later, he'd be in a garden with friends who couldn't stay awake and keep watch with him and one who would betray him with a kiss. Our story of shame began in the Garden of Eden, but it reached its highest point in the Garden of Gethsemane. And still Jesus pressed toward the cross to take all our sin and shame upon himself so he could bring us home into a new eternal family, presenting us as spotless to the Father. And he is not ashamed to call you brother. To call you sister. In just a moment, you'll come forward tearing off a piece of bread and dipping it into either wine or juice as your conscience permits. The cups with wine will have strings of twine tied around them. And if you need gluten-free communion elements, you'll find them in this far corner over here, my left, your right. If you're not a Christian, I ask that you don't come forward and partake of communion because it symbolizes something that you haven't accepted yet. Instead, I pray that you'll accept Jesus, that you'll pray to him, that you'll pray with the Christian who brought you here this morning to accept Christ as your entryway into this new family with a new story and a new future. And then we can prepare you in the weeks to come to be baptized and partake of communion with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for creating us, for giving us each other, for giving us a beautiful home that we have spoiled, relationships that we have spoiled. Most importantly, a relationship with you that we have spoiled. And I praise you for sending your son into our mess, into our broken story to take it all upon himself and to craft a new and better story, a new and hope-filled end. I pray that you will remind us of the sacrifice made for us to enter into this new and better end as we come forward and partake of the bread and the cup. I pray for anyone who is not in your family, 
that you will continue to reach out to them through your word, through creation, through Christians that you put in their life and to tell them there is one more seat at the table. In Christ's name, amen.